Welcome to Extension Out Loud. I'm Katie Balden. And I'm Paul Treadwell. And this week we talked to Mario Miranda Sazo. He's a cultural practices specialist with the Lake Ontario Fruit Program. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> we sat down and talked to Mario at Empire Farm Days. Mm-hmm. So you'll hear a little bit of noise in the background from the crowd passing by. Mm-hmm. It's worth noting that in February mm-hmm. of this year, Mario was just given the Outstanding Extension Educator Award for 2019 by the International Tree Fruit Association. Yes, and his focus lately, which we talk a lot about, is in apple trees. Right, and towards the end of our conversation, we got into a little bit on digital agriculture and what that looks like. It's a good conversation, so give it a listen. My name's Mario Miranda Sasso, and I am a fruit extension specialist working for the Lake Ontario Fruit Program, mm-hmm. uh, Cornell Cooperative Extension. And do you cover all fruits, or do you, are you a, a specialist with... Uh... So, the way how we work in the Lake Ontario Fruit Program is we cover five counties, from Niagara County to Monroe County, Orleans County, but... Most of our effort, uh, perhaps, is concentrated in apple production. I should say, perhaps, at least 80-85% of our time is kind of concentrated in apple production, high-density apple planting systems. Okay. What are the other 15%? What other fruits are, are grown? So we region? have a stone fruit, uh-huh. uh, like, a, like the big umbrella. A stone fruit uh, is apricots, plums, cherries, mainly. We have a history of uh, peaches and stone fruit in general, in, more in Niagara County. So it's, uh, there we have the lighter soils in next to Lake Ontario. If you go to Wayne County, perhaps, still we have peaches and stone fruit there. But perhaps the biggest acreage that was there sometime 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago was more in the Niagara side uh-huh. because our lighter soils with better drainage. And that's why we look for stone fruit plantings with a better drainage, more lighter soil, not so heavy soil with so much soil moisture. That's kind of the historical difference, I think. But to be honest with you, our work that we do, is not that we are not generating cutting-edge information in stone fruit, but our main effort perhaps is going to help uh, our apple growers yeah. in the region. So tell us about the high-density apple production. What does that mean? What, does, does, it, that what mean? does it mean? Okay, so till around 1950, we didn't have a way to grow an apple tree, like a small apple tree. If you see the, a normal apple tree, it's going to be a big apple tree mm-hmm. if you let those seeds that you eat in an apple tree to, to produce a seedling, and that tree is going to start growing it's going to take several years to produce flowers. Uh, and that tree is going to end up being a big, big tree after 50 years. It was until 1950s, er, the middle of the 1950s in England, when the dwarfing rootstocks were developed and sent to market. And that gave the possibility to start grafting an apple tree in a rootstock, and the rootstock, because it's a dwarfing rootstock, allow us to have a small tree. So when we have the possibility now to have a small tree, we can put more trees per acre. Mm-hmm. Perhaps 40, 30 years ago, we were using 100 trees per acre with a big apple tree that perhaps you have seen. 
But today we are planting from 900 to 1,000 to 2,000 trees per acre using dwarfing rootstocks. Some of those dwarfing rootstocks being produced at the Cornell Agritech Research Station through a Cornell rootstock breeding program. Mm-hmm. So we have dwarfing rooster being produced here in Geneva, and that gives the characteristic for that apple tree to be a dwarf tree. Because it's a dwarf tree, the energy of that rooster just goes to the top okay. of honeycrisp or gala or any cultivar that you have there. But in reality, the root biomass is, is very small. So that is one of the big differences. Okay. In the root biomass between an old tree that was had very deep roots, had good anchorage that we were saying, and uh, in a high density planting system, we had this dwarfing rooster with a small root biomass providing all the carbohydrates to the top part of those trees. Mm-hmm. And because they don't have good a root biomass, good anchorage, we had to support them with a training system. So that that is the reason why we use poles. Okay. and wire like you see in a vineyard. Mm-hmm. It's not because those grapes, uh, they don't have good root system. It's the opposite. The, the grapes here in the finger lake, they have good root system and they're able to support. It, it's a little different in the, case, in the case of an apple tree. It's a taller tree. It's a taller canopy. Mm-hmm. It's at least 8, 9, 10, 11 feet in some cases. So when those dwarfing trees are producing fruit, you have a significant amount of crop load at the top that if you have winds in September or anything weird, you can have the cell effect and you can have the entire row collapse hmm. if those trees are not well supported. So it's a significant amount of investment in a high-density planting system. It's not just the trees, mm-hmm. it's the entire ecosystem. To create a, a producing fruit tree, a good apple tree that's going to grow in an orchard, you do it by grafting? Hmm? So every apple tree that we see has been grafted? Yeah. Not, not grown from seeds? No. So what happens if you grow from seeds? Uh, you have more variability, and um, it's going to take a long time to do that if you grow a tree from a seedling. Uh-huh. So what we are doing today in a nursery, we, have, we plant the rootstock, a dedicated rootstock that was produced through a rootstock breeding program. We have one of the biggest rootstock breeding programs in the world here in Geneva also, okay. at Cornell. And they just produce rootstocks that are called the Geneva rootstocks. Most of them are dwarfing rootstocks. So when you get the rootstock, you plant that in your nursery. Uh-huh. And now sometime at the end of July, early August, an apple block of honeycrisp or a normal apple crop of gala or any Fuji or any cultivar, you go there and you have to have that knowledge of a nurseryman that you go and you cut the one-year shoots. And you get a lot of one-year shoots. And you go to the nursery and you take a bath from that one-year shoot and you graft that in the rootstock this season at the end of the summer. So we call that a sleeping eye. Is that bad? It stay there sleeping, doesn't leave out. It stay there during the winter, and next year in the spring, that little bud that you grafted now is gonna shoot out. It's gonna start developing the cultivar that you expect to have there. So it's a combination of the roots and the scion. So what's the process of developing new cultivars, new varieties? How do you do that? Oh, that's out of my. Area oh, okay. of expertise. Uh, 
Uh, that is uh, Apple Breeding. Okay. So we have of the nine Apple Breeding program that we have, the second biggest in the world here with uh, in Geneva also. Uh, with Dr. Susan Brown. Okay. So she's the apple breeder, uh, and she does all the crosses of pollen and trying to produce new selections. And through that program, she recently released two apple cultivars. One is called New York One, that we call it commercially Snapdragon. Uh-huh. And New York Two, what is uh, Ruby Frost. Oh, okay. So what those are the. Uh, one, New York One is uh-huh. called. The train name is Snapdragon. Snapdragon. Uh-huh. It's a very popular cultivar yeah, now these days here in New York. And the second one is New York 2. It's called Ruby Frost. So Dr. Brown and Kevin Maloney, her technician, they had new selection coming in the pipeline uh, mm-hmm. in the next, I don't know, two, three years. Oh, I okay. imagine something new is coming that is going to be the New York 3. Mm-hmm. But these two varieties have been very successful, and we have been learning how to grow those cultivars here in New York. These two cultivars, Snapdragon and Ruby Frost, are only being grown by New York apple growers. Oh, okay. okay. Interesting. So what are the most common varieties grown in your region? Uh, today we have perhaps um, the most common cultivar, perhaps like Empire or Jonagol or Macintosh, that perhaps many people know those cultivars. Those cultivars, uh-huh. it's unfortunate to say that, but but many growers are not making enough money to keep with those plantings. So in the last three years, we have been in a transition of pushing out those blocks. Several growers have made that decision. Even though it's a big tradition of still consuming this old cultivar, still grower, perhaps not making the money that really sustain those kind of operation. And they have been planting new, more exciting cultivar for the people who go to a Wegman or to a Tops. Mm-hmm. And they want to find a Fuji, they want to find a Gela, mm-hmm. they want to find a Honeycrisp, they want to find all the new varieties that also perhaps that is another concept that we use in our industry is called clubs so these are the club apples that is just a group of growers just 30 growers or 40 growers in the country perhaps mm-hmm. that they are able to produce a particular exciting apple cultivar so you have control of the volume oh, you have control of the marketing you have better control the price and the mm. special premium also help to fund the breeding program. Mm. So it's a new way to keep the breeders going with new exciting cultivar. But with kind of excitement of Honeycrisp, most of the apple breeders today have used Honeycrisp parentage, so genomic genes kind of have used that during the breeding process of the new cultivar. So many of the of the new cultivars that we have today, some of them, they have some line of parentage of the traditional honeycrease because mm. they know during these testings that the people like the crunchy apple, mm. crunchy sweet crunching apples. the cells mm. and getting that thing acidity or sugar or mix of flavors Uh, and you need to have that in in the new cultivar in the new apples Mm. those are the new apples coming Uh, it's a bunch of new apples 
eh, European Apple Breeding Program, New Zealand Apple Breeding Program, the mm. Cornell Apple Breeding Program here, mm -hmm. Washington, if Minnesota, eh, Honey Creek came from the Minnesota Apple Breeding Program. Uh, okay. Cool. Very cool. So Mario, can you just tell us a little bit about your journey to be where you are right now? Oh, yeah, it's, it's a crazy journey. I am originally from Chile. Okay. In Chile, after I got my bachelor, like an agronomist, I was hired by a German company called BSF. Mm -hmm. And uh, working for this kind of German company, and working in Latin America, doing product development, trying to find new ways to use their portfolio at that time. Pretty soon, even though I was at a very nice level in the company, I realized that I didn't have English at all. I couldn't communicate with the headquarters here in New Jersey in the U.S., so I was having a language barrier. So I am a very kind of high-risk guy, and I took the decision and I quit in 2000. I took my two suitcases and I went to California. So I went to UC Davis to first just study an intensive English program with a host family attached to the program. But because I am a lucky guy and I started meeting people, I met my major professor who offered me a graduate research assistantship that allowed me to stay there. He encouraged me to take the TOEFL and the GRE. But I wasn't thinking to go to grad school when I left Chile. Uh -huh. That started happening organically. I went to a master program, a very intensive master program. I did a concentration in wheat science. So I did all my wheat science experiments in processing tomatoes and in alfalfa, working with parasitic plants. And years after that, I started working for a seed company, Harris Moran Seed Company. That was a company I since saw that was started here in Rochester. And I met my wife, who is from New York, that she went to study to UC Davis. So we met there, and that's the reason why I ended up moving to New York, because she works in a winery in the Finger Lakes. Oh. And I came two times before I made the decision to this area in October, I recall. <laughs> and it was amazing how beautiful. Mm -hmm. My God, this is unbelievable, so beautiful. And... I made that decision. I was scared about the snow. <laughs> I was scared about the snow, but I am so happy here. So that is the reason why a Chilean ended up here at Cornell University. You studied wheat science, wheat control. Okay, and, and how did you in, how a, did in you processing tomatoes and in alfalfa? How did you make the jump from tomatoes and alfalfa to apples and oh, stone okay, fruit? Oh, okay, that's another. Oh, wow. Okay, so I'm gonna tell you. I had to tell you all the loop. So when I came here, when I applied to my first job, I was hired by Robin Bellinder. Robin Bellinder is, is a wheat scientist in the Department of Vegetable Crops, mm -hmm. what is today plant science or SIP. And she was doing wheat control studies at the Freeville Research Station. And she also was running a program that is called the IR4 program for residue trials. So because my background until that moment in my career was almost 70, 80% in vegetable crop with a wheat science uh, master, she offered me that position, like a research technician position at that time. And after three or four years, uh, again, the position was kind of... I, I mastered the position, I did great, but it wasn't for me, for the kind of guy that I am. 
Uh-huh. And I was leaving Cornell University after three or four years. I was really leaving, going to work for a vegetable company from, from the Netherlands with a position in California. And my wife was saying, Mario, it's a great thing for you, but had to be something at Cornell that is going to make you happy. So I didn't know what to do. And for serendipity, I ended up meeting an amazing Cornell faculty to another position. It's not my current position. It's another position that I thought I could apply, like being a technician working in a research program for fruit production in Geneva uh-huh. at the Cornell Agritech. When this Cornell faculty interviewed me for this technician position, and knowing that I was Chilean, and he knows Chile very well, and he said, eh, look, Mario, looks like you are a good candidate for this position, but it's, it's, there is a better position for you. And even though you don't have three fruit science background, I know that in your education and everything, we know that you, you have that. So I, I am very confident that you should apply. And Terence encouraged me to apply. And at the end was a decision of the growers because a Cornell Covered Extension, one of the beauty of Cornell Covered Extension is that it's run by the growers, at least in the Lake and Fruit Program. It's a grassroots. In the search committee, we have several growers. Uh-huh. We have the Hegodi director. We have people coming from Cornell. But at the end, there are several growers who also, those boats come. And if they trust you, in my seminar that I gave to them during my interview at then, I told them that perhaps if they are patient with me, perhaps in three years I could be delivering good information. But I had to learn first everything from, from the bottom. Huh. So I was very honest in my interview, and they trust me, and they gave me the opportunity. Yeah. And that was my journey that to become what I am today. It's an amazing thing. So in your bio, it also says that you specialize in cultural practices. Can you talk about that and what that means? So in our team, in the Lake Ontario Fruit Program, we have four specialists. One is in economic, fruit production economic, one in IPN, one in uh, fruit quality, pre and post harvest. And cultural practices or oriculture, I call it oriculture by itself, is taking care of the plant and growing the plant. Think about how to grow the tree. Everything is from rootstock, from scion, from cultivar, from nutrition, from irrigation, from planting, from trellis. It's everything what a grower should do at the highest level to be able to grow the plants in an orchard. Okay. And I took it even earlier because when I came here, the nursery part wasn't being developed. And I took that area also. So I, I developed expertise from the nursery part. I still I am doing nursery work this season. Hmm. It's like growing the tree from the nursery to the orchard and continue growing the tree at least the first two, three, four years until the tree gets mature. When the tree gets mature, okay, you keep care of the foliage and being productive and keeping the flower and blooming every year. But if you don't take care of those trees early on, it's like a baby. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's exactly like a baby. So I, I give as much information to our growers on how to take care of that tree and grow that tree in a vertical position, very straight. We call it today fruiting walls. 
So the new concept is not the traditional conical tree that we were uh-huh. growing until around 2010. That was kind of our extension message. Today, our extension message is more two-dimensional fruiting cannabis. So, so it's very narrow <laughs> and a fruit is, we call it a fruiting wall. So is that a, the result of research or just experience in the field that's led to no, this it's transition? No, it's something that's been happening all over uh, uh-huh. the world from different angles. For us, we feel very proud about this. Uh, we took it from the orchard mechanization approach that we realized we got to a point that we had a significant amount of acres planted and we could continue working for those orchards for the sustainability of the New York Apple business by incorporating orchard mechanization. Uh-huh. So one way to, to run machines and even thinking for the future for robotics that I am convinced that we are gonna have orchards ready for the implementation of robotics are gonna be here in New York. So we feel very proud about that because we were thinking about that at around 2011, 2010, 2011, uh-huh. is when suddenly we start switching and bringing that concept to our growers from the moment that we do a lot of mechanical pruning uh, during the summer with edgers and machines. So we keep a very narrow canopy. Today I lost count of how many machines and platforms and mechanical pruner we have in the industry. That's the direction. So we're looking at less than 10 years to make this transition to much more mechanized. At least in my case, when I began to implement or start doing some orchard mechanization was around 2009, 2010. At that time, I had only perhaps one grower that was thinking like that, very, very progressive grower that we have here in Western New York. We have very good growers from the Mississippi River to the east. We're very lucky that we had these growers here in the Lake Ontario Fruit Region. So they were raised, some of them thinking like that, some of them were thinking to invest and bring an equipment from Europe because the first machines that we brought for orchards, for platform, were coming from Italy. But soon, many growers realized that they had the machinery building skills to start building their own machinery and that starts happening again organically uh, with the growers. So as far as robotics are concerned, what do you see as the time frame for when robotics are really going to start being implemented in orchards? So there have been different approaches to robotics. I am very critical, although Zephyr have been a significant amount of money, invested millions of dollars. And initially, the goal was kind of to pick the apples with robots. Uh-huh. Thinking like how, imagine to recognize the apples, like the way how we recognize with pickers from Jamaica or from Mexico, and on top of that, to have the capacity to go there with your hands and pick the apple in the way how it should have to be picking, so right. you don't break the spurs, because right. it's a perennial system. So need need to be there, the structure, the flower structure need to be there to be able to continue blooming the following. It's not that you just can rip a spur. Right, yeah. <laughs> you have to take it very a, carefully. There's a twist. and a, a twist. Yeah. yeah. If you never have big apple or pears, it's a twist that you need to know how to do that. That was the approach. Was was a significant amount of development. Many guys uh, in the West Coast, it was a lot of uh, work being done there. And today, 
to make the, sh the, the story short, we have software, we have vision systems that are able to see the apple, that are able to suck the apple uh -huh. uh, with a vacuum system. Huh. That work has been done in Washington and has been done in double season in South Africa or New Zealand. The first commercial use of that machine was in New Zealand orchards huh. this year, picking apple, imagine February, when we pick apple in February in, in the Southern Hemisphere. So that is the first big development of robotics for apple harvest. But the way how I think had to be developed and is the new way how we are trying to bring this concept of digital agriculture because digital agriculture is the big thing for us here at Cornell that we came late getting together. If you start thinking about digital agriculture, we are perhaps in the 22, 23, 24 months since we start being more aware of digital agriculture. But we have big minds at Cornell University, but we were not working together until the digital agriculture initiative was started on campus. Uh -huh. Until last summer, the connection of the digital agriculture initiative uh, at Cornell University didn't have a link with the extension system done in a regular basis. So we proposed to come out with a digital agriculture PWT, professional working team, last year. So we got the approval for the extension component of a professional working team DA across commodity multidisciplinary, being the chair Terry Bates, uh -huh. uh, Jim Meyers, the co-chair, and myself, we are co-chairing that initiative. We have done very little work. It's, it's just the beginning of bringing that effort to multidisciplinary across commodity. For the Apple industry, now that we are more involved and we are more cohesive, and we have a Cornell faculty taking the initiative, like Terence taking the initiative for a big federal grant that we wanna have together with the Michigan Apple industry, the Washington Apple industry, New York, and more people by the end of this year, is to take the entire concept of digitalization of the Apple orchard. Mm -hmm. So that means that it to digitalize the trees since the tree is dormant, uh -huh. teaching the machine how to recognize that bud, how to recognize that spur, how to recognize that shoe, that flower, that petal. So by the end, as a result of that process, the machine, the vision system, know a harvest where the apple is. I, I'm not gonna tell my machine to go in September, and I'm not gonna throw to the lions to try to recognize between the foliage and everything where are the apple. The normal way, and that, that was the conversation that we started having with engineers from Silicon Valley, people from Google, people from Moog, that is another company, that, hey, we need to figure out this from the get-go. We need to teach the machines how to recognize the entire ecosystem. It's called the ecosystem mm -hmm. for three fruit perennial systems. The technology is there. The only thing that that effort, those engineers uh, in Google or in Silicon Valley, they were not seeing a business opportunity. This was, I just gave a talk in, in February about the thing here, uh, an international meeting that we had, and I gave them my point of view, say, this is an alignment 
of things that are happening just now at the right moment, at the right moment, where the sensors, where the technology, the price is going down, where I had new guys, new engineers looking around. They were have been making a ton of money in Silicon Valley, but now they see a startup that they can begin in California with an ag tech company. Uh-huh. And those guys have been killing themselves trying to drive a vehicle in an urban setting. And when I give them a talk, I say, guys, those orchards, our orchards no moving. Those trees <laughs> are right there. They're going to be there for 15 years. Uh-huh. Everything is mapped. Everything is safe. We shouldn't be driving those tractors with people. Even though I know I'm going to kill a job, but... I want everything fully digitalized. We have all those tractors, all those equipment. We really need to digitalize food production. So we are right there. That had to start happening. If we are lucky enough, which I think hopefully Terran and the rest of the team, if we get that funding, we are going to move forward uh, the digitalization of Apple production way forward. It's going to be very fast. But it, it is an interesting question. We'll, we'll wrap this up in just a minute. But, yeah, yeah. But when we start talking about robotics and digitalizing, it really does remove the labor force. And then we have this issue of what do you do with a surplus labor force? It's, uh, yeah. So, that, so that, that's, that question, that's a challenge with any of the robotics. come out a lot. I think so it's a new tier of training that is coming that is way overdue. Right, and we've done a poor job of dealing with our technological revolutions up to this point. If you look at the history of technology over the past 30 years, we innovate, and then we unleash it, but we unleash it without an eye towards what are the human consequences. And I think this is an opportunity to really take that into consideration when you start talking about it. Because it has to be taken into consideration because you're talking about people's livelihoods. It's going to be a development. Like I have the same question. I was in front of almost 800 Hispanics in a talk that I was giving in Washington about the adoption of all this technology. And they're so afraid and say, guys, this is an opportunity. This is just an opportunity. You are going to need to know how to monitor irrigation systems. Uh-huh. You cannot continue trying to oversee 12,000 acres of apple orchards in Washington and driving like crazy and trying to make sure. No, you need sensors, you need monitors, you need to feel comfortable with the computer. It's sun. The literacy, yeah. at least for our Hispanic employees, that I thought was high, is seven or eight grades, and they need. They always are asking. They want to learn Word document. They need to learn Excel. They they see that if they know that, they can continue yeah. developing their careers. But, I mean, it has to be a focused effort that goes along with the deployment of the technologies. You can't just dump the technology out there and then say, oh, well, now we have to deal with it. It has to be done hand in hand. It, so you have to have a, a, the development of literacies, the development of a more skilled yeah, workforce. Yeah. To compensate for the displacement that's going to happen with the technology. I'm editorializing. I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay. No, it's going to happen. It's a scale. And also the small growers are asking, uh, and what is going to happen with us? What is going to happen with us, with, with those technologies that are going to be developed for big uh, fruit growers? Okay, a, a small strawberry grower. So this is not happening today, but these sensors... Mm-hmm. that are being attached to these big machines, that technology is going to be in modular 
machines that are going to be easily adapted to an old frame structure that a grower is using in mm-hmm. Wisconsin for cranberry, for anything, mm-hmm. perhaps not going to have the same resolution, perhaps the sensor is not going to be at the same level that other machines are going to be working. They're going to get some of the benefit of that push for digitalization. So always tell them those alternatives, those modular systems are not there yet, no. but this app company... They want to use it in Apple, in Citrus, in Cotton, in Almond. They want to get to, it's, that's why I'm telling you, it's the next revolution. The conversation of what we are talking now, in, in fact, in California is, is a podcast about this. It's called The Modern Acre, that I would like everybody here in the Northeast, they want to follow this thing that we're talking. It, it, you have to be listening to The Modern Acre. Those are, they are bringing the sinkers the silicon guy, the Google guy, everybody, how we are going to do, it's not just agriculture, it's also salmon production. Right. It's all over. Yeah. It's all the vision system where we are trying to be very efficient. Some believe. If we digitize our orchards and the salmon and the streams and the rivers and the forests, yeah. we can then have a picture of what we're doing. We're better. We're going to be better. That's the hope. We're going to be better. We should. We, well, I we should so. always be better. I hope so. <laughs> All right, Mario, well, why don't we end on that note? So thanks again for your Thank time. You. I enjoy. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, that was really interesting. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Extension Out Loud, brought to you by Cornell Cooperative Extension. This episode of Extension Out Loud was produced and edited by Paul Treadwell, with help and advice from Katie Belden and R.J. Anderson. Please give us your feedback through our listener survey and sign up for our mailing list for notifications about new episodes. Links to both of these can be found on our SoundCloud page. Or by visiting extensionoutloud.com. Oh, really? Yes. Oh. <laughs>